just please um, apologize up front. Um, look, I do have Erlen's. So I, I do battle sometimes with readings. I might go back back and forth a couple of times. So give me some give, give, me, give me some mercy. But um, as I was walking up here, you know, I looked at the cross and I was thinking, you know, so so warped. And isn't that quite often how we see God? Initially, you come to God and you haven't studied His Word, and you've got a really warped sense. Your cross looks like that. And what a reflection that as you learn, all of a sudden these kinks, you start to work out. And you see God clearly for who He is. And I think this passage in Romans 1, 18-23 um, reflects that. So I'm just... Um, did we read the, the passage? No. <laughs> Somebody got a Bible. <laughs> so I took off the, the cover sheet, which I did print. I thought somebody was going to read it. Okay. Okay, <clears throat> Romans 1.18, God's wrath on, un, on unrighteousness. For the wrath of God is re revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their righteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made so they are without excuse sorry for they are with so they are without excuse for although they knew God they did not honor him as God or give him thanks or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened, and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for the images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. Now, Paul in this epistle just to give some context, is writing to a fractured Roman church. It's been run by Gentiles for the past five years because under Emperor Claudius, he banished all the Jews under, under persecution. So now you've got these, these Jews that are coming back into the church and it's fractured. And he starts off with pronouncing the good news of God that is available to the righteous that live by faith. A righteousness that is not their own, but that of Jesus. To speaking about the wrath of God. The unexpected change in the direction of his message is so that sinners can see how sinful 
they are from God's perspective. While simultaneously calling Christians to holiness and to show love towards their neighbor. See, first, we're going to look at the characteristics of God. Specifically, God's wrath, which is in line with His holiness. It is loving, just, and worthy of praise. You know when you're at home, and for the first time that you see a mark on the wall, and from then on, your sight is magnetically drawn to it when you walk by. The mark soon appears as if it was black, and then seems to grow. This is the same illustration that... that Paul is using. If you had to ask a random non-Christian if they would like to worship God, they would probably laugh at you and walk away. And that is quite understandable because they have no need for a saviour when they have everything they think they need. It is only when you tell them about the most horrific fact in the whole universe that they might start to think clearly. That being, God is good. And in thy naivety, both atheist and wayward Christian would agree that it is very good because by their own standards classify themselves as good and deserving a heavenly home at the very least. But it is only when you see yourself as dirty and in light of eternal punishment that God has been storing up for you that you see a need for a saviour from the deprived state you are in. The Christmas season which has just passed highlights the genuine desire for many to help and please others. Often people choosing not to, pointing a finger and saying, I will not love my neighbor. I choose to love myself. I choose to spend my time, my money, and my effort on me and not you. Choosing, choosing to glorify me. Shouting out like Adam and Eve, in the garden, from their hearts, that they do not need God. In this way, they will be judged twice, here, in this life, and when God will give them over to their depravity, and again on the last day, by Jesus in heaven. You see, you only have perspective when you contrast yourself to God's perfect standard. The law of God that crushes any pride you have of meeting the perfect standard of God. You <clears throat> have you ever told a lie or stretched the truth or omitted part of the truth to someone? Then you're a liar. Have you ever taken a pen and not returned it or not put money in the parking meter or not signed the correct hours when you're logging your timesheets? You're a thief. Jesus says, if you, if you hate anybody, you've killed them in your heart, and you're a murderer. If you have thought a lustful thought towards anyone other than your spouse, you're an adulterer. Just using these to equa you equate to a lying, thieving, adulterous murderer. This passage stating that all created things 
we can see the glory of the invisible God. We are also a created thing. We show the law of God by how we expect others to treat us. And hence, any duality in a transgression by our own standards affirms the standard of God. To give an example, if you take a pen from someone and not ask to use it, and later on when a pen is taken from you, you shout out, who stole my pen? In this affirmation, you have admitted when you took the pen, it was stealing. And having admitted to your sin against God. This image that you are a lying, adulterous, thieving murderer, not equating to how you see yourself. Now you see yourself no longer as a perfectly white wall that reflects your goodness and a ticket to heaven. But it is pitch black. This making you look harder to see if you can see any light. Finally, you see a light speckle. But it is so small, remembering the time when God himself enabled you to perform a good work. When you first came to him, reflecting on the glimmer of hope, you realize it is the echo of the color of a soiled rag. Knowing your motives behind even the good deeds often reveals selfish desires and motives. You want to claim that it was God who was your primary motive, but alas, it seldom is. You wanted to show others how good you were. Other times, it is to keep the peace so you can carry on doing your own work you deem important. Always wanting the recognition and approval of other humans you deem worthy. God was seldom the one you tried to please. It was all about you. Others might be thinking, what about the good person that has never heard the gospel? Surely God would not affect his wrath on him and send him to hell. I will tell you to not worry about him because he will be in heaven. But where will you find such a person? Jesus is the only one that was able to be classified as good and fulfill the law perfectly. You see, when we enter this life, we do not need to be taught to sin. We pick it up without even realizing it. Take, take two kids. See which toys one plays with. And then invite a friend over. Give that friend toys he never plays with. And watch covetousness, jealousy, and anger be displayed. The thing that we do not want to accept is that God is an infinite being who hates sin. Sin is an assault on his being, his character and glory. God is not like us who has a fight with his wife and after a couple of hours can't even remember what it was about. God is an infinite being and remembers everything perfectly. Perfect to God, I would not know what that would be like. But I know that there are times and moments in my life I would not be able to cope it with if, if the pain was perfectly remembered. 
God, on the other hand, remembers your assault against him and against his holiness perfectly for eternity. Turning a once-off sin into an infinite transgression for all of time. Did you hear that? Turning a once-off sin into an infinite transgression for all of time. Your assault that deserves immediate retribution and judgment. But no, God loves us and gives us mercy by holding back the floodgates of his wrath. Jesus has a twofold reason for damming up the wrath. A damning that is a sign of his love. Giving sinners time to repent and turn to him. And secondly, so that it will be just to hand them over to their depravity and the punishment that flows from their sins. God's wrath is also about the is sorry, God's wrath is also not an uncontrolled emotional outburst. It is, however, fair and just and is tailored to your sin. The topics that are acceptable to preach in the churches today are often limited by the things that the media focus on. This curbing what some preachers will often speak on and limiting it to God's love and grace. In the congregations, you will often hear when talking about justice and judgment of God, the phrase, my Jesus, is not like that. He is loving and full of grace. However, that would contrib contribute to making an idol of God. Because if anything is added to or removed from his character, it is a lie. And this would distort the God we serve. God's wrath and judgment is an essential topic so that we can glorify him fully. God's wrath is the most offensive characteristic that non-Christians to accept, even though they would agree with it if they spent time getting to know God fully. You see, many Christians are so focused on the attributes of love and grace of God that they do not believe that God is perfectly in line with his character to punish people to hell for eternity for the sins that they commit. In themselves creating an idol of God that they feel suits their worship. Doing what is right in their own eyes and practicing idolatry, but which is far removed from the God of the Bible. For those who, who are Christians, take heed, even though God's wrath is no longer directed at you. What about the person next to you? Leaving you with the question, if your actions emulate those of the master that, <clears throat> that you proclaim to follow, do you love them? Give up your will, your plans, and your hopes, doing what he asks of you, like he did in the Garden of Gethsemane, knowing the time had come for him to offer his life so that you might live. And Jesus answered the Father, not my will, but yours. Are you prepared to suffer for those you claim to love? Jesus did. The wrath of God 
is just. Now imagine a police officer arrests a criminal who had been on trial a number of times. He's never been locked away because he goes to the same judge. And this judge reckons, you know what, I'm a graceful and merciful judge. And this time, this guy, he made you watch while he raped, killed your family in front of you. And the judge lets him go. Tell me you would not go to every news agency and pursue every avenue to rectify this injustice. So why do you want God not to be the same? Is it because you love for your family members and friends while knowing we deserve the same punishment that deserves hell? Or is it because we do not do what God has asked and share his good news? The thing is, God has put you in his plan to beg and plead on his behalf to those you love. He wants you to walk and talk with them so that they can be saved. God gives you the call to love others, but when you are lazy and say that God is only love and grace and nobody should be punished, you are saying that Christ died for nothing. You make God out to be a liar. Job said, in, said if I sinned, you would be watching me and would not let my offense go unpunished. Standing by and watching sin while doing or saying nothing does not remove your culpability as a silent stance is that of acceptance. Just like the confessional eulogy, forgive us for the wrongs we have done and the good we have not done. You, you see, we sin by not standing up for God when we know his commands. Are we spiraling away from God or towards Him? Knowing that we are unable to enter heaven by our own righteousness and our depravity is shown by in our inability to love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your strength and all your mind and to love your neighbor as yourself. How would you change your priorities and actions, knowing God is standing right there with you now, knowing He will be judging people today, handing them over to their sin, knowing you will be giving an account for your actions or inactions. How does the Bible say we should address sin in our lives? In the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus says, If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body be thrown into hell. If this is how serious Jesus thought of sin, then surely we should take heed of the judge's words. Jesus, who spoke of hell more, more often than anyone else, the judge that is warning of the wrath of his judgment, warning us to be holy, holy, holy. And if you love him, to feed his sheep, do you love him?
then feed his sheep. Secondly, we will look at God's wrath is directed against all ungodliness and unrighteousness. These being the two areas of focus for God's wrath in, in, in the verses. That of ungodliness, which is an attack by sinners against God. And secondly, where sinners do not have a love for one another. A vertical and horizontal aspect. An echo from the Mosaic Covenant which is the positive sermon in contrast to this passage in Romans, which is the negative and which both complement each other. Exodus 19, the Mosaic Covenant reads, Now therefore, if you obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be a treasured possession out of all the people." Indeed, the whole earth is mine, but you shall be for me a priestly kingdom and a holy nation. A treasured possession is one that is holy or has a vertical alignment to God and has a priestly kingdom which shows the horizontal aspect of love to the world. Romans being the contrast to the Mosaic Covenant where there is not a blessing, but a curse, because they do not choose to be holy or priestly. Lastly, we'll be looking at when God's mercy is spent, you will be judged. Who do we fear? You see, two years ago, we went back to South Africa, and Michelle and I, we went to my brother's house. My mom gave us the remote. And we rocked up at, at the gate. Opened the gate. And there's some people that were walking. It was, uh, it's Africa. So it's, there's a dirt road. And there's a, people coming from the other side. As soon as we opened the gate, they went through the bush. And apparently they took a, a long way around the house. Okay, so we, we went into my brother's yard and... Close the gate and we're driving up and these two big dogs came running up to us. We eventually parked the vehicle and one was on Michelle's side, one was on my side. I looked at Michelle, Michelle looked at me and without any words being spoken, we weren't going to get out that car while these the, the dog on my side, Goku, it's the biggest or widest dog I've ever seen. It was like a lion without a mane. It was looking at me and the drool was just falling from its lips and from its teeth. And I thought, there's no ways. It's looking at me and I'm going to be the afternoon snack. There's no ways I'm going to... My brother's wife come out, comes out and says, no, come, come, come. We looked at each other and we carried on sitting. <laughs> but the thing is, I wonder if sometimes we have more fear and give more reverence to a dog than we do to God. So are you going to upset the peace knowing that 
it would be right to do so in God's eyes? Or are you more afraid of a dog bite? Are you ready for the repercussions of offending someone? Or are you more afraid of a dog bite? Are you unwavering when it comes to what people think about you? Not keeping your mouth shut about God. Or are you afraid of a dog bite? Do you fear God enough to speak boldly to everyone you come across? Just like Paul and accepting the persecution and the figurative illustration of the dog bite. Following God comes at a cost. And if you follow him, you will be rejected and persecuted, just like he was. We are so fixated on the here and now that we have our priorities backwards. Jesus in Matthew 10 states, that we should be focused on the one that can destroy body and soul. Who has control over everything? While wisdom is the outcome of hearing his words and doing them. However, most people will substitute the truth for a lie. And for this I'd like to talk about R.C. Sproul's um, illustration where he was teaching a philosophy class. They'd just finished school and they were entering university. And the first assignments were due and there was a handful of, of these students. They'd genuinely, genuinely been battling to hand in their assignments. And they explained to him humbly that they were battling and he gave, gave them an extension. However, the second assignments fell due and this time there was about 20 of them that didn't um, hand in their assignments. And uh, they made some excuses and eventually RC gives him the, um, an extension and they sing to him. And but then the, the final assignment was due. This time there was 50 that didn't hand in their assignments. And he started... He took out the mark sheets and started giving Fs. And of course, there's always somebody up there that shouts out, this is not fair. And he says, and R.C. turns to him and says, well, if it's justice you want, I'll give you an F for the second assignment as well. And everybody kept quiet. The human condition seems to strive for exchanging a truth for a lie. In the story, the student's initial position was an unexpected, welcomed grace that was humbly asked for, which was a God-sent reprieve. However, it soon became a demanded right. Do you fall into this trap? Do you take God's mercy and grace for granted? Do you sin because you tell yourself God is all about mercy and love and in this way ignore his holiness do you love him it is a heart it is heartbreaking when you put yourself in god's shoes when people abuse the grace and mercy he gives pleasing their own lusts doing what is right in their own eyes ignoring ignoring the creator and his ways 
Ways that give life in a holy community that serve and love each other in truth of God. Everybody knows that lying, stealing, covetousness, adultery, injustice, and all other sins might be okay until it is done to them. Knowing it breaks down a family and a community. Knowing that habitual sinners don't want to give up what they enjoy doing and resent anything and resent anyone who, who might condemn them. Is God contem- condemning you? If the path to life is narrow and few find it, then we can expect that the wrath of God will be poured out on people that you interact with on a daily basis, perhaps even the person sitting next to you. Sin is a violation against God and against His people and the people of God. Sin hurts all of humanity, including the ones we say we love. In recapping verse 21, For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened was it god that darkened their hearts or was it by their choice firstly you need to know that god does not darken hearts or make them sin as he has no darkness in him and to enter the notion that god made them sin is a heresy and that that is taken the passage totally out of context. To give insight into the origin of darkness of their hearts, we can obtain some clarity through the words of Isaiah 63, which reads, O Lord, why do you make us wonder from your ways and harden our hearts so that we fear you not? Return for the sake of your servants the tribe of your heritage. It is the resulting effect that when God leaves us, that we do what we want and thus stray from the path and become futile in our thoughts because we are unable to do what is right when we are left to our own devices. Light can shine into dark places, but dark places cannot go into the light. Don't let God remove his light from your life. Pray like Isaiah for God to shine his light on you so that you can follow him for the sake of his glory. This is like the Pharaoh who kept on sinning by not letting God's people go. And then God removes his mercy and the result is that Pharaoh's heart was hardened. An act where God removes his hand from Pharaoh, allowing Pharaoh to do as he saw fit, which was to carry on sinning as a judgment. A judgment that was effective immediately and that can have an eternal consequence. We can glorify God who gives mercy to those that do not deserve it. That he restrains his wrath from wrath and puts up with our sin for as long as he does so when god's wrath is given out in judgment you can believe that it is fair and right 
and God deserves praise for the loving act of his mercy and long-suffering. You see, when you receive anything from God, you are to recognize where it came from, and you are to give thanks, even if it is hard times, because it is for your good. If you do not recognize God and do not thank him, you are being sinful. Any complaint is a direct assault on what God has given you. So stop sinning. God's wrath, it will be poured out on the ungodly and unrighteous. They will be thrown into the lake of fire. And this is not a maybe. It is a given. The only way to avoid this outcome is if you are his treasured possession. Because you are in Christ who is the Father's treasured possession. Who calls you to be like him. Knowing you will be disciplined by God and you rejoice in it. Relying on grace sparingly in loving pursuit of holiness. Knowing you'll be giving an account of your life one day in heaven. Conclusion. So where is the hope for a sinner? Hope is given in the surrounding passages of Romans where righteous Sorry. Righteous is given to those, righteousness is given to those who believe by faith in Jesus, who died and was resurrected. A death which enables God's wrath to be poured out on Jesus for the sins of the believers, while at the same time giving Jesus' righteousness to them. A glorious act of love that pulls you out of the fire which you deserve giving two scenarios that you will face one day, depending on the choices you have made or will make. Picture the throne room of God, and everyone is gathered for your court case. Christ calls out your name and you step forward, giving an account of your life, including every failing you have made. And Christ calls out, is his name in the book of life, or has it been blotted out? He then turns to you and says, I do not know you, which is immediately followed by your candlestick being put out. The trumpet blast and the bowl of God's wrath is poured out on you as you are banished to hell. There is no second chance, no appeal, as he sees everything, knows everything, and you agree with his verdict. Or alternatively, as Christ is about to make his judgment, he pauses. He gets up from the judgment throne, walks over to the mercy seat. Then when your gaze refocuses on him, you see a slaughtered lamb, Jesus. He says to you, your sins have been paid in full, my good and faithful servant. The account of Jesus' life that consists of his birth, death, and resurrection, a story of love that pleads for all people to count the cost on whom they choose to fear and who they choose to worship, a story of hope 
where he calls sinners to become children of the almighty God. So in closing, I'll leave you with this. We are saved from God, for God, by God. Close your eyes. Pray. Dear Lord, we thank you that you reveal to us what we require to do, that your ways are the right ways, and that we need them so badly, but we, we need your Holy Spirit to work within us to show us what you need us to do so that we can glorify you in everything we say and do, that we can see you in the, in the hard times as well as the good times so we can glorify you, that our image of you can be as it should. I pray this in your precious name for, for the week and months and years to come. Amen.